This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Well, hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. Absolutely delighted at a personal level to welcome our guest for today, Mr. John Anderson. Uh, Mr. Anderson is well known to the Australian community as one of our leading politicians. We'll get to some of the the story behind that, but at the back end of that, uh, grew up as a farmer, sixth generation farmer in New South Wales, moved into politics, representing the the, um, country party and served in the national parliament and in cabinet were part of some of the key developments in the period between um, 1996 and his retirement from Parliament. At, at a point when he was uh, had the the privilege of being widely acknowledged and uh, celebrated by both houses of Parliament, uh, and again we'll come to some of that. Leader of the the um, National Party and Deputy Prime Minister at allowed him to serve our country as acting prime minister on several occasions. The most significant period might have been him uh, taking that role during the period of uh, September 11th, 2001, and the significance that that held for our country and indeed for our world. Uh, Mr. Anderson, John, it's absolutely delightful to have you with us. Uh, Thank you for making this time. Uh, You're speaking to us from your property up in New South Wales. What what is... uh, the life like up in uh, country New South Wales at this time of year? Well, good to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I have been here now for quite some time because of COVID-19. We're all working from home. Uh, and so I normally travel a lot. I do quite a bit of speaking. I have a podcast and video series of conversations. I'm involved with several charities. Uh, but all of those things uh, at the moment either are not happening or they're happening from home. So I'm being a normal farmer again. Back back to uh, getting the hands dirty with the soil and on the tools, or is it not quite like that in um, a modern farming experience? It's a very good question. Uh, farming is now quite high tech. People don't realise that, I don't think. The business of growing food is very, very technically sophisticated. Australian farmers, it's said, uh, amongst the world's most efficient, one Australian farmer feeds 600 people, which wow. is a staggering number. So amazing. the machinery is big, it's sophisticated. For example, our tractor has several screens in it. It's uh, GPS uh, located. It has auto steer, so it sets its own lines uh, and avoids overlaps and underlaps as you go around the paddock, sowing your crops. The harvest is the same. Um, it's very high tech, really, but I still like to get my hands dirty, and there's still plenty of manual work to do as well on farm. So it really is a profession that requires an extraordinary range of abilities. So I was talking to my daughter-in-law the other day, who grew up in Sydney, and she made the interesting observation that when she was at school and said she was interested in agriculture, the teachers tended to say, "Oh no, 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 don't do that. You're very bright. You can do something better." But she would say to you, 
but actually it requires all of their mental ability mm. and all of their training and all of their degree yes. to do properly. Yes, indeed. I think I think you're right in that it is um, under-regarded in terms of the level of expertise and understanding that needs to be held and applied to uh, to, to make it a, a growing concern. Um, John, you you come from a family of farmers. Was that career, that life inevitable or was that something that you freely entered into? Uh, well, a bit of both really because my dad had always said, oh, don't come back to the land. It's too hard, too many droughts, too many downturns in commodity prices and what have you. And then when I said to him, well, I've got a degree and I've been offered a job, uh, he looked like the world was going to fall in. And I suddenly realised he actually really wanted me to go on the land. Right. Now, a lot of the people thinking this might be young people, it's not easy to choose what you're going to do in life. And to be really frank, often you don't quite know where life's going to lead you. If you'd told me when I was 18 or 19 that I'd end up in the federal parliament and then I'd end up as a cabinet minister and then as deputy prime minister, I would have said you had rocks in your head, um, even though I was always moderately interested in what was happening around me, I would never have thought that would happen. So the first thing I'd say is it's really important to work out what it is that you believe in. Uh, how do you see yourself and the world around you? What is your worldview? What view do you take uh, of um, uh, the, the, the physical world, uh, the uh, social world, the educational world? around you? These are big questions. Mm. And I treat a lot of young people, they're actually quite tough. I don't, I don't think they're necessarily all that easy to work through. Mm, no, indeed they're not. So what, what was it that you believed that that you see your dad's expectation and and respond by heading back to the farm? Well, I realised uh, my mother had died and uh, I realised that he was lonely in the deep down. He did want me to take over the farm and to have a go at it. I thought, oh, well, I'll give it a go. And anyway, ended up deciding that was what I wanted to do and spent my 20s. I had a degree from the University of Sydney and a master's. And then, um, but nonetheless, ended up back farming again. And I decided I quite enjoyed it and the challenge of putting yourself against the elements. And there's nothing more rewarding when you get a good crop in Australia. If you sometimes go through a pretty, pretty ordinary ones before you get a good crop or seeing a mob of fat cattle that you know people are going to enjoy when they have a nice steak at home or enjoy a sausage or whatever. Uh, so there's a lot to commend it and you, you're your own boss, uh, I suppose, in a way. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of challenges in it and most of us deep down like a challenge, I think. Mm. So you, you, you mentioned uh, in the comments you were making about uh, your daughter-in-law the need for you to bring all of your experience, all of the training that would come through formal education into the application of your farming. Was, was that your experience, that you felt the things you learned formally complemented, extended, changed what you learned by observing your father and your grandfather and their practices? Well, probably much more that than my formal degree because my degree has nothing to do whatsoever with agriculture. Oh, right. My son ag science. I didn't. Uh, I'm a generalist, um, you know, a historian and a very second-rate writer, I suppose, uh, and uh, quite interested in philosophy and what have you. Uh, but I guess I'd grown up on the farm, so the practical side of it was easy. 
I then found I had to turn around though and work out how to run the thing as a business because mm. it has to be treated as a business. Even though, frankly, a lot of people wouldn't do it if it was only a business because the income's too unreliable mm. uh, and it has to be a vacation as well. It's got to be something you love. Nothing worse than seeing a farmer who doesn't like what they like, uh, it doesn't enjoy what he, what he or she is doing. So, so what is it that has captured your heart? Is it the open spaces? Is it the producing something that's of value, the difference that it makes? What, what is it that you love about the, the farm? Uh, well, the first thing I'd say is that I'm not certain that you can neatly analyse those things. Um, in the old days, some of us loved Holdens and other people loved Fords. You know, why? What's the difference? Um, uh, you know, some people love working the land, other people love teaching or uh, carpentry or arguing a brief in a, a, in a court of law so or building a bridge or flying an aeroplane. Um, it's a good thing that we're all different. It would be a very boring world if we were monogrammed and all had the same interests. I suppose for me, in part, it was a several generations before me. Uh, I like growing things. Um, I do like the space, and I kind of like the physical environment. I think we live in a pretty, pretty part of the world and fairly fertile soil, so you can, in a good year, grow good crops. And as I said, for me personally, a few things are more rewarding than being on a combine harvester and seeing golden grain pouring into the bin out of the crop that you've grown. Mm. You spoke about the That's challenge. That's a different world. Indeed. Indeed it is. That, that few of us get to really understand to the degree of, of uh, somebody that lives it. You spoke about the challenges that involved in working the land and, and the sense of being able to rise to those challenges. Given that a lot of that challenge comes from the environment itself, the, the inherent rainfall and, as you described, fertility of soil. What capacity do farmers have to master those elements and how much are they just subject to the to the conditions and the climate? No easy answer to that. Uh, an Australian farmer or grazier of animals has to be able to adapt because this is not new. Strangely enough, um, in terms of the climate change debate and so forth that we hear so much about, you would sometimes think these things were new in Australia. This is not new. Right. Um, we've got records going back to the 1830s and there have been horrendous droughts, there have been horrendous floods, there have been uh, horrendous bushfires at various times that my family have had to grapple with. The drought we've just been through has been undoubtedly one of the worst, but possibly not the worst since... Um, since European uh, settlement in Australia. Uh, the way you cope it determines whether or not you make it as a farmer. I, and I always say to young farmers, remember when you do get a good year, it's what you do with that, with the proceeds from that good year mm. that will determine how you do as a farmer. You have to have some reserves. You've mm. got to be able to put aside some fat to make it through the lean times, the harder times. Mm. And is, is that a, a, an easy discipline to learn or, or is that a bit of experience? Yeah, no. <laughs> No, it's not. Many a young farmer has got into deep trouble because they get a good harvest and they go out and buy more machinery than they should or mm. they buy a fast tutor, uh, whatever, and you can spend an incredible amount of money on machinery on a farm. I, I mean, really. Yeah. So it requires discipline and focus right from the moment you begin. And uh, many make it, uh, frankly, and sadly, many don't. Indeed. It's, it's not an easy occupation. 
No, in, in, in many, many ways, I think. Um, you mentioned mm. a little earlier about the importance of finding what you believe in and how what yep. you believe in guides your decisions about what to do with life and, and where you'll place your feet one after the other. You, you are known in your public life as being a, a person of faith, um, which carries a sense of, of a, a weight of belief. Can you share with us how you came to your own sense of belief and, and faith? Yeah, um, I think I always believed that there was a higher being. Uh, but it was only, and I, I came from a family that probably would have said the same thing, but never went to church. Mm. Uh, we're normally of a Presbyterian background, really, because we're a Scottish family originally. Um, but uh, uh, I went to an Anglican school in Sydney. There was a chaplain there who spoke in language that I could understand. He spoke of a personal God who relates to us personally, loves us and can be loved. I remember thinking, that is ridiculous. I believe there's a higher power, but I don't believe he's personal. How can he be? Look at all these people. How can he be personal? Mm. How can they be personal to him? Uh, but uh, talking it through was not the, not the chaplain at that school, but one of my teachers. I remember thinking, he's old enough and wise enough to be able to tell me about these things. And I do the math now. He was 27. So there you go. Mm. Um, anyway, he explained to me what might be a classic description of the Christian faith, which in a nutshell is that uh, we are each uniquely made in the image of God. We are moral beings. Um, we can choose to be good or to be bad, but we've essentially not chosen to be, or Adam on, from Adam on, uh, Adam and Eve on, we've essentially chosen to rebel against God, but nonetheless God loves us and is concerned to find a way back. Mm. And that way back is the thing we've just celebrated at Easter time, the resurrection of Christ who died for us, even while we were still hating him. You have to hate somebody to put them to that sort of death. Mm. And in a, you know what we know enough. We know enough about ourselves that we're really honest. Most of us would have been brained uh, having crucified, mm. just like most of us would have belonged. This is a thing Jordan Peterson says. Uncomfortable, but if we lived in Germany in the 1930s, we probably would have belonged to Hitler Youth. We need to be really careful mm. before we say, "Oh, no, no, I'm above all that." Mm. Most of us in the right environment will do the wrong thing, or the wrong environment will do the wrong thing. Um, and then it was at university, I think, when I started to realise that belief is profoundly more rational to me than unbelief mm. or non-belief. Now, that's not a popular view today, yeah. uh, but I've got apologies for it. I roundly and firmly believe that belief is more rational and more reasonable than unbelief. I am convinced that the extraordinary and at one level, very unlikely story of the Bible tells is actually true. Mm. And, and you're you're just, you're mentioning or you're referring more to than just the fact of believing anything, but you're specifically talking about belief in in the Christian the Christian faith, the Christian story. Well, yes, uh, G.K. Chesterton was a brilliant thinker around you know hundred hundred and twenty years ago. And he said, you know, the reality is that strangely when you stop believing in God rather than, you know, um, being, uh, if you like, sceptical and sensible and so forth, you tend to be open then to believe in anything. Mm. 
And I'm amazed at what people now believe. Mm. Pretty stuff. Uh, some people are surprising people who really have very strange views about, I think, that are almost superstitious. Mm. Uh, and yet they will tell you they, they're rational and scientific. By the way, I see no question whatsoever between science and Christianity. I simply don't see one. Uh, I think that more often than not, those raise as an excuse. In fact, sound science keeps revealing more and more uh, of just how extraordinarily ordered and intricately designed we are, mm. the world we live in, is, the universe we live in yeah. is. Yeah. Interestingly, you, you would be well-placed having such close contact with the creation, the, the seasons and the cycles and the, the patterns that, that must speak to you a little of the orderedness of God, even in the randomness of drought and seasons and those sorts of uh, occurrences that you, you find as a challenge to your, your farming enterprise. It's a really interesting point, that, because it drives some farmers away from faith. They say, oh, God must be too cruel for me to believe in him because he gives us this terrible drought. Others are powerfully reminded that we're not in control. And if we're not in control, I would far, far rather believe that someone is in control mm. who will one day bring all of this to some sensible, reasonable conclusion and the biblical promise. Well, the biblical ex explanation for the pain and the suffering is sin, mm. we've done the wrong thing, we're separated from God. Uh, the, the story of Christ tells us that if we will but believe, uh, that is the big decision to be made in this life, we believe in him or not, if we will, then all will be put right, the wounds will be bound up, the pain will end, relationships will be restored. Now that, I know, to a modern, cynical, Westerners ears, sounds extraordinary. But I would turn around and say, all right, well, let me tell, let me ask you what your worldview is and where it's leading because the one that we've adopted in Australia and in so much of the West, which might be called radical indigenism, it's all about me. Yeah. yeah. I am, I might even be the centre of the universe. I think it's a, a very cruel belief system to let a young one fall into unchallenged. But anyway, that's where we're at. What has been the result of it? Well, the result is not, you know, it's there in the surveys where, at record levels of distrust of one another and of our institutions, of our governments, um, uh, even our courts. Uh, we are tribalised. We are lonely. Mm. Our social capital is degrading. We have record levels of anxiety and depression and self-harm, especially amongst young people. Yeah. So to those who would say, oh, John, you're a fool, you still believe all that stuff, I would say, well, tell me about your belief system. Tell me what sort of world it's opening up for us. Don't you think it's time we were humble enough to say, hang on, hang on, this rampant secularism where it's all about me isn't playing out very well either. Mm. We need a bit of a rethink. Mm. Yeah, that's good. John, obviously the experience of coming to an understanding of faith and of, and of um, your Christian convictions, those beliefs, have become the foundation for your life led you in some way to think about moving into politics or was there something more practical or, or what was the trigger from becoming a, a politician from being a farmer? Um, 
Look, you know, you never want to say your motives are one hundred percent pure. Uh, all of us have mixed motives, I suppose, and maybe there was a part of me that thought, oh, "I'll be you know, too clever by half, and I'll be good at this." But I can also genuinely say that I felt quite deeply a sense of responsibility to be available for service. I remember thinking or saying to somebody, no use criticising the way the generals are running the war if you're not prepared to at least enlist as a private Mm. to do your bit. And my father had fought during the Second World War, and I know he hated it. He was not the sort of man who enjoyed going off the war, and he had a terrible war. He was right on the front line. Uh, He was wounded and not expected to live. His body was almost completely broken Mm. um, on the battlefield in North Africa against uh, Adolf Hitler's General Rommel. Uh, that there's an example in it, an example of, you know, he went because he felt it was his duty and his responsibility. Mm. And I think I felt, that, and I still do, that that to serve is not only important, I'd go further than my father, because I don't think he would have said this at the end of his life, I would say you find yourself in serving others as mm. Christ has served us. Mm. But you, you chose a form that... Uh, Christ himself never elected to go down. You you went into representative politics and the this. The Bible is the most profoundly book you could ever find, but it's not a political book in any way, shape, or form. What do I mean by that? No, Jesus was. I mean, a lot of his followers were hoping for him to be a great leader who mm. would uh, you know solve all their problems and what have you. In fact, he eschewed that. He said, uh, "No, uh, I'm about your heart. Mm. I'm about." I'm about the life after this one, though I care about what happens to you in this life. My focus is on the eternal. Mm. Um, Having said that, why do I say it's a highly political book? Because it clearly, clearly reveals that each individual has dignity and worth. That has a profound impact. It lies behind Western democratic traditions, whereby we have the rule of law. we have parliaments so that people can choose who will lead them and then remove them without having to use a gun if they get full of themselves and lazy or proud or start to govern badly or exercise power for their own ends. Uh, all of these balanced nuances come out of a, a biblical view that says, on the one hand, each individual, as, as our longest-serving Prime Minister, Bob Menzies, put it, um, all souls are equal in the eyes of heaven. So even if we have a different station or a different role, different wealth, different whatever in this life, the reality is that we have to value one another because heaven says all souls are of equal value, mm. even the most poor and degenerate, or degenerate is not the word I'm looking for, sorry, um, uh, uh, disadvantaged mm. uh, individual uh, uh, that you could ever imagine. In the eyes of God, sometimes it might be hard for us to believe, but they're of equal value, so there's no cause for pride. And pride is, of course, you know, the great one that traps, especially a lot of a lot of people in an age when we're told it's all about us. Mm. We have to be proud. I believe we're right. We find it hard to see that other people might be right. And the great writer C.S. Lewis said, "The problem with pride is that it helps, it prevents us from looking up and seeing something greater than us, mm. and of course, down on others, so we think we're superior to them." And both are dangerous. Mm, indeed. John, let, let me ask you, you've you moved into politics, um, carried your Christian faith with you. What's I was asked to go 
Are you invited? I'm looking for it. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I have a go. Challenge to have a go. And uh, to my amazement, my friends, including Christian friends and people I really respected, said, "No, you should do it. So put your hand up for service and see what happened." It was a wild ride, it but it wasn't something that I'd dreamed. Wasn't any sense of incompatibility between the world of politics and the world of of your your faith life? Challenge, but not incompatibility. I don't believe that. I actually believe that to live in a democracy is to see a form of government that is as well suited, given that we have to have government, as any that's ever been devised from a Christian point of view. So I know people often, without really thinking it through, will say, oh, it's a dirty world, you shouldn't be involved. But I would ask the question then, should we say that William Wilberforce, who was the man who led the charge to abolish slavery, he was a Christian, Mm. and he thought to himself, I should leave the parliament, it's no place for a Christian person. And he became convinced that uh, he had two great things to do. One was to, uh, it's not language he used, but to clean up corruption, uh, especially in the English Parliament, and the other is to try and slavery. And by the time he died, both had been achieved, and an extraordinary era of democratic freedom unfolded. Absolutely extraordinary. It wasn't perfect, but it was probably a greater state of civilization than, than the world had ever seen mm. at that point in time. And Australia was a great beneficiary of it. The people who wrote our constitution had those great insights from that mm. great era of deep understanding of the world we live in, and that constitution's given us freedoms and opportunities. Not perfect, I don't say that, but are the envy of people the world over. Mm. Uh, you don't have to be smart to see that people want to enjoy them. That's why people want to come here. Mm. Not an accident they want to come here. So you're describing government, the leadership of community, as something almost gifted by God for the good of all people. Is that sort of how you view the notion of government? Yes. Um, it's an, in one sense, it's a necessary evil. If we all behave perfectly, you'd need little or no government. You might still have to have government to decide which side of the road you're going to drive on and, you know, um, uh, you know, what sort of education people would have, but you wouldn't need government to stop people doing the wrong thing. You wouldn't need police forces. You wouldn't need courts. We need all of those things because so many of us will at some time in our lives be tempted to do some, something wrong and actually all too often do it. Mm. We need to be very honest about ourselves. We don't really behave all the time as well as we ought to towards others. So we do need government. So d- now, that- having said better, the better the citizenry, the better the form of government can be. The democracy, though, as the people who really thought about it long and hard, and you know, if you like, particularly the American founding fathers said it, it's a system of government that will only work while people are decent and civil in their behaviour to one another and are prepared to make sacrifices. If we become absorbed with selfishness, if we only ever ask what can our country do for us, well, democracy in the end won't work and we'll end up with some more totalitarian or dictatorial style of government. That's that's the reality. History tells us that. John, you've been part of parliaments and, and part of cabinets that have been involved in making momentous decisions and responding to momentous events. In, the, in those yeah. moments, do you... Are you, were you conscious of the place of your of your faith in 
entering those conversations with your colleagues? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, sometimes they wouldn't let you forget either, and the media wouldn't. But the answer is yes. Um, it gave me a clear understanding that I was not to. Now, people might say, um, well, you didn't live by it, but I tried to. Uh, that I couldn't lord it over others, mm. that I had to be there for everyone whether they voted for me or not, although, of course, I wanted people to vote for me, so I always tried to persuade them to vote for me, I suppose, uh, and to recognise, if you like, um, that the parliament is greater than me and the people are greater than the parliament, if I can mm. put it that way. Mm. Yeah, that's good. The, the world of politics is cynically viewed, often viewed as a, a world of spin doctoring, of of uh, presenting a, a yeah. an image rather than revealing what it, what is real. How did you, as a as a Christian, find that balance between sending a message that was needed or or refined or crafted and and uh, being true and authentic and sincere. And it's a different world. It's got, everything's become, everyone's become so much more cynical over the last decade. And it was tough. And yeah, all those accusations were made. But really in those days, Australians, I think, responded to authenticity even if they didn't like it, if they knew you believed you were doing the right thing and you explained it well, they would accept it. Not always with the greatest of life, but they would. Um, what's happened now, though, is that the cynicism has been hypercharged. I think there are two great problems. One is the terrible, terrible knocking of our culture that has invaded, just infested um, uh, our, our universities and then into our school system. And very rarely, I mean, how many students can say that they were honestly you know, taught that democracy is the greatest guarantor of freedom and that capitalism is easily, easily the best way to ensure opportunity and a decent living standard for anybody else. You can argue until the cows come home, but the reality is that nobody can ever show you a system that's worked better. I'm not saying it's perfect, but no system's ever been shown to work better. And every other system I can think of has been shown to be inferior and result in poorer opportunities, in poorer lifestyles for people. Mm. And what's more, we've extended it unbelievably internationally. People forget that. I and mean, the lifting of people out of poverty, there are still 800 million people who don't have enough to eat, but there's 2 billion who have too much to eat. Mm. Uh, that is an extraordinary reversal. Uh, vast numbers of people now get an education when they didn't once. 80% of the world's population has some access to electricity. So incredible progress is being made, but no, we have to knock everything, everything we've ever done. Uh, in our culture is bad and I know young men feel that I've seen them responding to Jordan Peterson I've seen an audience full of young men mm. basically responding to Jordan Peterson because they feel they're being accused of being the sons of terrible white colonialist oppressors mm. and many of them say well that's not who I am and I don't want to be like that Yeah. so um, I, I do blame academia not all of them, but far too much of it. Far too much of our history is either so badly taught no one does it or it distorts history so badly that people don't understand it. Yeah. Now, the second problem I have, and this is a massive one, no one can talk about the way politicians behave if they're one of these social media warriors, the Twitterati, 
that got worked into an absolute lather of hatred and disgust and contempt for anybody who dares to disagree with them. It's a real problem. And I really feel for young people because, I mean, a lot of them have told me it's very, very hard for them to stand up for what they really think is right yeah. because if it isn't popular, yeah. they'll get cancelled. Yeah. We can be unbelievably cruel to one another. And if we understood our history, we'd realise how dangerous that is because one day, you know, everyone, every dog has his day, so to speak. One day an idea is popular and that's followers are on top. The next, it's completely reversed. Yeah. And that was how the whole Western concept of freedom of conscience respect another person's right to their views mm. uh, was, was sort of born, really. The idea that you don't burn people at the stake if you disagree with them. Mm. Well, now we cancel them with social media. And as we know, some young people then take their own lives. Mm. So, John, you're talking about the value of democracy as as a principle, a way in which we can live together and, and govern our communities. And, and part of what mm. I think I'm hearing you talk about is uh, – a failure to appreciate how that how that actually works that we've we've lost the capacity yeah. to to engage in a meaningful conversation do you, do you think that that is uh, just at a personal level that it's just at individual level or is there an element that our parliamentarians have lost the art of disagreeing civilly yeah. arguing the case yeah, no. no doubt about it the problem is the question for people who ask themselves is are our parliaments upstream or downstream of culture? Yeah. In other words, are the parliamentarians just reflecting us, the people who put them there, Yeah. and imitating the way we talk to one another and we won't agree and we look for the things that divide us, not the things we have in common with Australians, or is it the other way around? Now, there's no doubt parliamentarians should set an example. Uh, and actually, I'm going to say to you that many of them do. Mm. There are many parliamentarians who behave with exemplary manners and decency. Um, they really are, uh, but they're never given any credit for it. Mm. You don't see blazing headlines, you know, uh, the member for XYZ today demonstrated what an utterly decent and honest and reliable person he or she is. You don't see those headlines. No. But can I tell you, uh, it happens, and it happens regularly. Yeah. Yeah. So is it is it a case? Right. You see, we're so cynical, we assume it's all bad because that's what we're told. Well, it isn't all bad. Yeah. The country wouldn't So if I'm pursuing this conversation with you mm. a bit more, you're advocating democracy as being not just the rule of the masses, not just the the, the populace and, and whatever is popular being the standard, but of, of an ideal that we all need to aspire to. Is that... Mm. A fair uh, reflection of some of your thoughts? Uh, I think the key to it all is understanding that, that, that life is not a battle between good people and bad people. Mm. A great Russian thinker and writer, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, said, if only it was so simple that the problem of evil is that there's some evil people, so if we get rid of the evil people, there will be no more evil. Yes. It doesn't work like that. Because as he said, in fact, the dividing line between good and evil lies somewhere across every human heart. Nobody's perfect. Yes. Nobody. And if we were, if you want to get rid of evil, each of us has to cut a bit of ourselves out. Mm. We fall into this terrible trap of assuming this is a problem of thinking of the centre of the universe. We fall into this terrible trap of saying, well, if I'm the centre of the universe, I can't be wrong. Yes. So if you disagree with 
you must be wrong. And then that rapidly morphs into, since I'm a good person and you disagree with me, you must be a bad person. That is hopeless. Yes. We all need to learn that from time to time uh, we're not always right. And the second point about it is we are all allowed to have different views. Mm. A great American writer who's written about the terrible hatred in America today, a book called Love Line Enemies, I think it's called, Arthur Brooks. And he himself says, you know, I am a, I'm a conservative. He said, but my parents were not. They were on the left side of the line. Mm. He said, do you think I love them less or they love me less because we were different? No. And we simply have to recognize. See, what we've lost in this post-Christian age is an idea that God, it's the Menzies point, mm. says that all souls are in the eyes of heaven, therefore, that's a really big restraining. I mean, good grief. God loves you. I, you and I disagree profoundly, but he loves you as much as me. I better be a bit careful. Mm. You know, I might be needing to have a look at myself. Yes. Well, that's not what it says. We now say, oh, no, line up your rights. Anti-discrimination law will solve your problem. Mm. But in fact, competing for your rights, instead of celebrating freedom, mm. we pursue rights. Mm. Instead of exercising responsibility and judgment and decency, we run for our rights. Mm. And it's working very well. And I do feel for young people who are wondering how they can find their feet and the pressure to conform and conform to a worldview that's pretty inadequate in my view and not very satisfying is mm. massive. Mm. Yeah, so what I'm, I'm hearing that... Um your your recognition of democracy as a way of proper right government worked when it was in relationship to a higher set of understandings, a higher set of principles, when, when it's simply the practice of our own concepts of good, bad, right, wrong. We, we lose that sense of generosity, that sense of equal before God, regardless of our yeah. background or our viewpoints. Or opinions. Well, we're ability to forgive as well. And I asked, I have a, a, a conversation series, and I asked Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who's in the House of Lords in England and enormously highly regarded thinker and writer, whether we're in danger of losing forgetting, uh, to the ability to forgive. And he said, well, yes, we are. It's a real mm. problem. We don't forgive. Mm. So judgmental, we don't. I said, what happens when you, when no one forgives anymore? And he said, then you have to hope that people might forget, mm. but they can't forget. That's what media will drag up everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Mm. So without forgiveness and without putting differences behind us, well, a marriage won't work if you mm. can't forgive. Mm. And if you can't forget and you keep bringing things up, you won't restore those relationships. Mm. And the culture we've started, this highly judgmental culture that we've started to impose on our young people, and I don't think it's going to end well if we can't rediscover our shared humanity. None of us are perfect. Mm. So you, you mentioned that you attributed some of the trigger to this, to the world of academia in universities and then down into schools. Yep. Where do you think the solution, where do you think the way out of or, or a change of direction of the path we're heading down might lie, John? I wish I knew because I'm not all that optimistic. I am greatly encouraged, and I really am, 
by the number of young people who contact me, as I say, I have a conversation site, and say things like they're so thankful that they can go somewhere and get a different diet of views because they can't go to the university. I think it's profoundly disturbing. Yes. Uh, but a number of them who are thinking for the I – mean, I'll give you an example. An exceptionally bright young man I met the other day, I mean exceptionally bright, very clear thinker, very gracious young man, studying at one of Australia's absolutely premier universities, and he's studying law and commerce. And he said to me, and we were talking about this very topic, he said, 85% of the people in my classes believe that a lot of the time they've just been fed ideology. Mm. But now, one would have thought lecturers might be humble enough to say, well, we better try and be a bit more objective and a little bit more professional. Mm. 85%. Because this fellow was not a monk. Mm. And he wasn't one of the best universities. And he, he said, we can be. They, they think the students can't see that they're being fed a line. Mm. They can see it. They understand. They're not stupid. Mm. Yeah. Now, of course, there are many, many honourable exceptions. But there is far too much of this right across the Western world. Far too much denial of freedom of speech. And that sounds trite and that sounds easy but to say. But what it actually means, the really serious underlying issue, is that there's not a healthy discussion of different perspectives. We keep hearing that diversity is important, that we support equality and diversity. Um, they don't, you know, often that means we'll only support you if you fall in line with our worldview. Yes. yes. Well, not everybody does want to fall in line with a narrow worldview. Diversity as defined by by them <laughs> rather than yes. general diversity. John, you, you made a comment during our conversation that uh, the Bible is not a book about politics or it's not a political treaty, but it is highly political and it sounds to me as though you are while you're not in the parliament and involved in uh, argy-bargy politics you are retaining uh, a sense of political activism through other other forms do you do you see that you are still involved in this arguing the case for the common good and for political principles i don't think you can ever give it up the Bible insists that we do unto others as we do, as we have them do unto us, that we love our neighbours as ourselves. And uh, uh, I think it is an enormous force uh, for selflessness and a commitment to do while we have breath in our bodies, mm. try and serve. Uh, I, I do see, I, I, I understand as, as I see it, my understanding is that um, we don't actually have the option of being selfish. Mm. We are selfish by nature, but that we are compelled, I think, if we take our faith seriously, mm. to seek to do good whenever we can to whoever we can in conjunction with whoever we can help. Mm. Mm. John, our, our time's pretty much spent, but I, I wanted to uh, acknowledge the good that you were doing when you served in the highest offices of our of our democracy, uh, the significant role that you played, not just in the decisions that you made, but in the character that you evidenced while you were in those roles and the universal respect that that garnered. But I also want to acknowledge how you continue to be true and faithful to the call to make a difference, to live your faith through whatever channels God opens for you, whether that's 
your own podcast or the work you do for charities or community leadership. We want to acknowledge the fact that you're, you've been under the hand of God in your career, taken to the heights, and even now the instrument of, of the one who's called you. Any last thoughts that you might want to share with those that might be listening? Well, that's incredibly kind of you. I, I, I think I spend most of my, a lot of my time thinking, why didn't I do more or why didn't I do it better? But that's uh, very kind of you. Um, yeah, look, I think I would say to young people in particular that this is a tough life and I wish you all the very, very best, but I would challenge you to recognise that unless you seek the truth, go looking for it, um, you won't find it. You'll fall into the, you won't find a good life. You'll mm. fall into the trap mm. uh, of thinking, well, you know, we're, we're just clever monkeys. Mm. Um, and, and, and the one who accumulates the most toys wins. There's a lot more to it than that. Mm. John, you, you have evidenced the fact that you have been captured by the belief that there is, there is more. There's more to us. There's more to any of our call in life. And uh, thank you for sharing your views on what that, that big idea, the faith of, of uh, the Christian belief, what it's meant for you and what it can mean for all of us. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you very much indeed.